It's no secret if you know me well that I love good stories. I love good movies. I love good books, the characters, the plot. But one of the reasons I really love them is because good stories bring me to a place in the story where I identify with a character, where the, the, the literary work evokes and crystallizes maybe how I feel at a given moment, the condition of humanity. One great story is the uh, musical Fiddler on the Roof. And the main character, Tevia, is wrestling with a changing world and the way that his daughters are finding love in the world. And through the course of that, he reflects on his own relationship with his own wife, Golda. And in a heartfelt song, Do You Love Me?, while they're talking about all the turmoil and all of the dissonance and the mistrust of son-in-laws, I have one, yuck, just kidding, he's, he's awesome. Sorry, Matthew, if you're on the live stream. He turns to his wife and says, do you love me? And Golda says, do I love you? Right now, with our daughters getting married and all this trouble in town, you're upset, you're worn out, go inside, go lie down. Maybe you're having indigestion. Tevia says, Golda, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? You're a fool. I know, but do you love me? Do I love you, she reflects. If you know the song, you know what she says. For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love now? He persists. It's a tender song. She reflects. For 25 years, I've lived with him, fought him, starved with him. 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love... What is? It was either late 80s, early 90s, a more contemporary singer, a group, uh, Extreme, wrote a song, More Than Words. Saying I love you is not the words I want to hear from you. It's not that I want you not to say, but if you only knew how easy it would be to show me, more than words is all you have to do to make it real, because then you wouldn't have to say, You love me. I'd already know. Jesus said similar things to this, didn't he? Why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? If you love me, keep my commandments. This is where we are this morning in Micah chapter 6. There is great dissonance between the words that the people would say and the actions of the people towards their God. So our question this morning is, do the people of Micah's day love God? I'll give you a little bit of background here. Uh, In the previous two oracles Micah has given, he's had back and forth exchanges with the people. There's been give and take in the encounters. In fact, even other prophets have rebutted him, remember? I think it was in chapter 4 they told him, don't preach about this stuff, Micah. But now, God has had enough. It is time for the trial. 
It's time to review the evidence. It's time to reach a verdict. A lot of Bible scholars break Micah into three sections, three oracles, based on a call to hear, H-E-A-R. The prophet says, listen. Listen. In chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house. Shouldn't you know justice? You who, I'm sorry, that's, I, I jumped a spot here. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention. You earth and all that is in it, the Lord God is going to be a witness against you. In chapter 3 and verse 1, there's a second call to hear. Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house. Shouldn't you know justice, you who hate the good and love evil? You see, there's been courtroom language all through the book of Micah. But now, now it gets real. This third call to hear, see chapter 6 and verse 1, hear what the Lord says. God summons the mountains. God calls to the foundations of the earth as witnesses of the charges that God is going to bring against His own people. We are going to see in this text, and you just read, the reading of the charges. After that, God will chronicle the specific laws that have been transgressed So there is no doubt of the guilt of his people. In the sentencing phase of the the trial, it will become clear that everything that God is doing is right and best, even if we don't understand it. And at the end, the perpetrators will weep and cry due to the condition that has come upon them. And at the very end of the passage, there is a glimmer of hope that only God can offer in a situation like this. Have you ever been in a trial? Have you ever witnessed a trial? Have you ever been the defendant in a trial? Have you ever had a loved one be the defendant? It's a bleak and hard situation. And only God can offer hope. And next week, this judge that we hear from today will step in and he will declare and display his wonderful, steadfast love, his great compassion for the same people. It's beautiful. Make sure you come back. What's our main idea today? If you are a note taker, I'll give you a few things here. Reminisce. What we want to do today is reminisce on God's extreme love and gratefully follow Him. We want to reminisce on God's great extreme love and follow Him. Well, let's get to our text. The structure of the text actually lays out fairly easily. God speaks. Then Micah speaks, then God speaks, then Micah speaks. So we have four little sections here to look at, and I don't think you'll have very much trouble following along. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, God speaks. In chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, Micah will reply, somewhat rhetorically, somewhat on behalf of the people, but it's a different voice. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 16, God speaks again. Hear the voice of the Lord. Though God will give pronouncements. And in chapter 7, through uh, 1 through 7, again, Micah spoke, woe is me. I don't think God's ever uttered those words, you think? <laughs> Micah is speaking. So what we will find in these four different sections is that each section has a particular legal aspect to it. I gave them to you. The indictment of the Lord. The reading of the charges. The pronouncement of sentencing. 
and the cry of the perpetrators. But that is just the outline of the original hearers. Right alongside with that, beautifully implied, are four questions that God wants the Israelites to consider that are soul questions, S-O-U-L. And that's where we will really focus most of our time together today. It's beautiful. Okay, let's jump in. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. I've said we see the reading of the charges. Let's read. Listen to me as I read those verses again and think about how this is an indictment. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you, in, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. I hear this word indictment and I can't help think about right now our contemporary politics and probably the most famous indictment that's popped out here recently is a grand jury indictment of former President Trump. Now there's all kinds of mudslinging that goes on in the world. You understand that? People say all kinds of bad things about one another, but an indictment is a formal charge. It got real. Evidence must be presented. The witnesses that are being called are the heavens and the earth and the mountains. Incidentally, if God spoke to you about you in this way, would it slow you down? I have an indictment against you. This is profound language. God calls these outside witnesses to confirm, and we're going to see that he has been just and righteous with his people and that the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel have been wrong. Wrong in their attitudes, wrong in their actions before the Lord. The Lord asked the first question directly. It's not a hard question to see in the text. Oh, my people, verse 3. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. God asks this question alongside of the indictment, and the indictment is, haven't I been good? Have I been a good God or a bad God? How do you think about God? God is going to speak about this here. The question is implied. Have I been good God? Have I been a bad God? Have I been a stingy God? Am I a distant God? Am I a disinterested God? Have I been like an absent father? Answer me. It's very direct. Do you feel it there? He asked the question, and God answers the question like any good lawyer. Uh, my sister's a judge in the Mary County uh, system, and uh, I, I've learned from her, and she's a former prosecutor, that most lawyers do not ask questions in trial they don't already know the answer to, right? They don't ask questions they don't already know the answer to. They, they, they want predictability. God is the same way here. He doesn't just ask the question rhetorically and leave it hanging there. Almost like a cross-examiner, cross-examining his own question, God gives some evidence. What does he say? He takes us down a little trip on memory lane. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. He evokes the language of the Exodus. That's pretty profound, isn't it? Is he a good God? redeemed, rescued from slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Moses, a leader. Aaron, a priest. Miriam, who prophesied. 
they might think, well, these were our people leading us. God says, no, I gave you them. I did that. I'm a good God. Those references you probably know. These next references you may not know as well. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. If you want to look at that more closely, you need to jot down Numbers chapter 22, 23, and 24. It's a very interesting little Bible story where a donkey speaks to a prophet. But this foreign king, in seeing that God was leading his people and prospering his people, tried to conspire with the prophet of God, Balaam, to curse God's people. He tried to bribe him. And God intervened, and God intervened, and God intervened. God was faithful again and again and again to protect his people from evil, to protect them from curses, to protect them from outside influences, that to continually deliver them. The story goes on longer than you think it should, but the point of the story is that God keeps intervening. <laughs> God keeps protecting. God is good. And you may not know the geography here in the last section here. And he says, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? Shittim was the last campsite uh, on, on the uh, wilderness side of the Jordan River. And Gilgal was the first campsite after they miraculously passed through. You know I kept my promise. I said I would take you to the land. I took you to the land. You can do a little bit of a Bible survey and study on those if you'd like to. The point is not each individual granular knowledge. The point you begin to pick up on is God is not stingy. God is not a bad God. God is not a distant God. God is not a disinterested God. God is not like an absent father. God redeems you from slavery, provides you with direction, protects you from evil. He is your protector. He is your defender. He is not a burden. Think of the question, how have I wearied you? It reminds me of the verse in Colossians where fathers are told not to exasperate their children, but to bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. To exasperate is similar to weary. Have I been like this bad God? Rather, he was their protector and defender, and God gives them grace again and again and again. While these examples are not ours yet, I hope you are feeling in your heart affirmation and love for a great God who is a good God. And these are his examples to other people, not to you. What's God's point? Again, as a clear attorney, he says it at the end of verse 5, that you may know that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God defends himself. And this is what he says. I do what is right. God says, I am a good God, not an evil God. Friends, you know this. People still get this wrong today. People try to sit in judgment on God. You know many of the apologetic questions. If God is good, why is there evil in the world? If God is loving, why do children have cancer? Why do bad things happen to good people? And friends, listen to me. I can't address all of that today, but I can tell you this. If God handled each and every one of those insolent and rebellious situations individually, they would all end up like this. God would call heaven and earth 
as witnesses, and he would demonstrate that God does nothing wrong. He is a good God. You see, God cannot lie. God does not steal. God doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't covet. He doesn't gossip and slander. In contrast, God loves justice and righteousness. Now, the obvious application for us is to ask the same question, isn't it? Has God been good to you? This is a very, very important question to meditate on, my friends. Has God been good to you? Because if you don't meditate on this question, you will begin to focus on the things in your life that seem not to be good. Just like me. Yeah, there are things in my life that are not great. But this is the question. Is God good? That got us into the mess of sin and the curse under the sin in the first place. Can't you hear the words of the Satan serpent speaking to Eve in Genesis 3, just dripping with sweet disgust and implying to Eve that God isn't good? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Basically saying, hey, God is holding out the good stuff from you. Well, we shouldn't do that. We'll die. Well, you will not die. Not only is God not good, but God doesn't tell you the truth. I know he said you will surely die, but you will not die. But in the day that you eat it, you will be like him. These are the lies that Satan has been telling from the beginning. We must constantly and continually meditate on God's goodness to us or we'll end up holding our own pity parties and from there we'll soon find ourselves discontent and in our own subtle ways putting God on trial as it were for his failures. Blasphemous. God is good and right. Well, I can't do it for you, but I could model it. What has God done for me? Some of these things are true for you too. God knit me together in my mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made. God has held the world together for me by the word of his power and allowed my life to continue. God revealed his word to me at a very, very young age. And although I was rebellious and stubborn, God sent his son and broke through my spiritual self-sufficiency, enlightened my blindness, and made my spirit alive to believe in Jesus. Someone I've never met who lived 2,000 years ago. When I've strayed, God has lovingly and patiently disciplined and instructed me as a perfect father. And he has never given up on me. God continues to help me study and understand his word. Redeeming my life, drawing me more into a relationship with him. Although prayer isn't something that comes extremely naturally to me, God engages and listens to me intently when I seek his face. God sustained my health. He's allowed me to work and play for all these many years. I have a sweet wife, many children, grandchildren, loving church family. I live in a prosperous and free nation, so much so that my wife would say I'm not the same skinny guy that she married. I'm fed with fatted calves, as it were. Hasn't God been good to us? I just put things here that... I, I thought we're general. There are more specific stories in my life. If we do not reminisce on the goodness of God in our lives, we will be drawn away. And with all that in mind, we come to point number two. 
which is where our responses and people's responses often go wrong. Some people, when confronted with God's goodness, want to try to compensate him. They think worship then becomes some form of paying God back for his goodness. And that's the rhetorical questions we see in the first part of verses 6 through 8. When Micah speaks, let's look at as the people of God seem to respond with this question, kind of like, well, what do you want then, God? Well, what do you want? And God will tell them in no uncertain terms. And now we see the reading of the charges. Verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Lord God on high? And we find a series of increasing rhetorical questions. They begin kind of believable, like, yeah, you could do that, and they get to the absurd. They become hyperbolic, a hyperbole, a ridiculous exaggeration to make a point. What do you want, God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Okay, well, that's in the law. That's not unreasonable. That's what was prescribed. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Okay, I don't have that. (laughs) More absurd. With ten thousands of rivers of oil. I don't even know how to measure that. (laughs) It's flowing. You see, now we've moved to the rhetorical, to the absurd. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. I find it very interesting that although Micah is in the first century or in this uh, 8th century BC truly being rhetorical, it is ironic that this is how atonement would be made through the giving of a son. No. No, you can't pay God back. No, you can't compensate God. Don't go off the page, Micah. Listen to me. Verse 8. He has told you, (laughs) O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Anyone ever seen this verse on a plaque? Anyone ever sang this song in a round around a camp? fire i'm not the only one he has told us where did he tell us this is not new i don't i don't recognize this language exactly to do justice to love kindness and to walk humbly with our god this is this is the summation of the commandment well let's figure it out jesus was asked when he was on earth what is the greatest commandment does anyone remember what he said That's right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly right. We find the first greatest commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We find the second one in Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's another. So those could be. is, Is this similar? Is this the same thing? There's another summation of the of the law we find in exodus chapter 20 you've heard of them god's top 10 the 10 commandments half of them deal with your relationship with god half of them deal with your relationship with other people understand these verses look at them to do justice this is what god wants and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your god well it seems to me that the first two have to do with the second greatest commandment I'm pretty sure I don't do justice to God. He doesn't do injustice, so I don't have to fix it. 
God does not require my mercy and kindness. These are interpersonal things. However, the third instruction to walk humbly with our God seems to have to do with the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, so now I found some similarity to the rest of the Bible. Okay, this, this does make sense. What about the command in and of itself? You notice the different verbs? We're told to do justice. Very distinctly, we're told to love kindness. And then very, very distinctly, we're told to walk humbly with God. It would have been, if God had just put this in a list, here's what I need from you, justice, mercy, and, and uh, a walk with me, then we might think of them all more similarly, but they're different. I'd, wow, we have eight and a half minutes to go. All right, buckle up, we've got to run. Um, Justice is external. You do it. You see an injustice, what do you do about it? You try to correct it. It's external. Are there always injustices around you? No. So justice is external. What if kindness were external? Well, then you could do a couple of kind things and feel like you had fulfilled the law. But to love kindness is more of a heart or internal command. I'm to so love kindness that I never run out of loving kindness. Which is kind of like our Heavenly Father, isn't it? He is eternally, his loving kindness endures forever. And then to walk humbly with your God has more to do with relationship. To walk with him. What's the question? I said there was a question that came along with every one of these. So these charges that are indicted that you have failed to do. This is what he told you to do. Don't do this other stuff. Do this. God says, have I been unclear? Aren't I clear? Haven't I told you? It's the same message. Friends, if we were going to apply some of this today, I would just be very, very thankful that God is clear. He does tell us. He reveals himself to us. He's pulled back the curtain um, by showing us who he is in the world. He's pulled back the curtain by giving us his word that we so often ignore. And praise the Lord, he pulled back the curtain in the most personal way at all, of all, and sent his son, the Lord Jesus, and showed us who he is. God is not hiding from us. God is not making it extremely difficult. God is not unclear. Do you understand? God is calling to us and being very clear. Point three, we'll move through this one fairly quickly. The judgment and sentencing. Some of this has been already shared in Micah before. Uh, Note takers, uh, in verses 9 through 12, uh, the sins that are being judged are, 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 are outlined. And in verses 13 through 16, the punishments that are given. Interestingly enough, um, our society really would struggle with this. We don't even know what evil is. Isaiah said, woe to you who call good evil and evil good. That's where our society is. Our society is just debating what is good and evil. This is murky waters for America 2023. It's not murky for the Lord, though. The punishments that are given or the sins that are laid out in 9 through 12 are a lot of the same sins I would point something out to you in verse 9. You hear a little bit of Solomon there. It is sound wisdom to fear your name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a little bit of uh, Proverbs hidden in there in the voice of the Lord. No surprise. 
And he just describes the dishonesty that we've been, the financial dishonesty that we've been describing through, as we go through Micah. They got dishonest weights and measures, and it's like a shell game at a carnival. They're just robbing one another. People are being exploited. The rich are exploiting the poor. The leaders are oppressing the citizens. It is unjust, and God is unhappy. In verses 13 through 16, he says, Therefore I will strike you. There's, there's the pronouncement. Therefore I will strike you with a grievous blow. And if you want to read Deuteronomy chapter 28, you will find that everything that occurs in verses 14 and 15 are exactly what God promised would happen if they failed to honor him in the land. You may work in the land. It's, it's funny that it's Labor Day weekend because what's he saying? Your labor is, I didn't think of this until now, but your labor is you're going you're gonna to put up stores and someone else is going to get it. You're going to work and not reap. You're gonna, you know, you, all this stuff that you read. The work is going to not work. Real quickly, he says of them in another indictment, just almost like an aside, just so you know, verse 16, you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. Uh, this would be like naming Hitler and Stalin. These are probably the t- they're two of the absolute worst kings from the northern tri- from the northern tribes, the nation of Israel, not Judah. They murdered true prophets and they implemented the perverse sexual practices of Baal worship right into the kingdom and right alongside the temple worship. By name dropping these guys. Micah says, he, 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 it's, the worst, it's some of the worst stuff that you could say. It sounds like Romans chapter 3. And the question that comes along with this is, hey, is God unreasonable? Again, talking to my sister, I find it fascinating because she's only been a judge for a few years that uh, when crimes are committed, she's given sentencing guidelines. You think a judge has unilateral authority to do, you know, if you commit a crime, they can do whatever. But there are some guidelines. Here's on the low side, here's on the high side. A judge listens to the mitigating factors and almost always sentences within the guidelines lest that uh, uh, give uh, cause for an appeal. God pronounces sentencing. Our society doesn't even know what evil is. The question to be asked is, isn't this unreasonable? This is audacious. The question then is, should God overlook evil? He says, I've had enough. Well, Edmund Burke, the philosopher, famously said, all evil needs to do, all evil needs to prosper is for good men to do nothing. All evil needs to prosper is for good men to do nothing. If that's true, how much more is it if God does nothing? How bad would that be? Listen, friends, to this idea of is God overreacting, we have to train our minds here. The shock isn't that God judges sin. The shock, boy, that's a... Sally sells Caesar. The shock isn't that God judges sin. The shock is that people think he shouldn't. That's a shock in our culture that anyone would question 
that evil should be judged. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. I hope I'm doing this justice, friends. This is a big passage. They're so good. It's such a beautiful passage. Micah speaks for the people. We're back to Micah speaking now. He gives an admission of guilt and a plea for mercy. You would find that in a courtroom. He gives an admission of guilt and a plea for mercy. And if we go out of time, I'll give you the question. Is God listening? The, the question that comes alongside of this. Is God even listening? Okay. Micah admits how bad the sin is in verses 1 through 6. He says, I'm like a disappointed gardener. <laughs> it's harvest time. You read it, the summer fruit's been gathered, it's the time the grapes should be gathered, but there is no cluster to eat and no first ripe fig that my soul desires. We are not functioning the way we should. The godly has perished from the earth. Chapter 7, verse 2. There is not one upright among mankind. They all lay in wait for blood. Each one hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what to do evil, and they do it well. If I were going to rewrite a song, I'd say all they do is sin, 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 no matter what, what, what. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desires of his soul, and they weave it together. It's a conspiracy. They weave it together. Do you hear that language? It's, it, it, it is so malicious and intentional, this sin. There's Genesis 3 language again. Anytime you hear briar and thorns, your ears should remember this is an evocation of the language of the curse, the consequence of sin. The, how would you like this to be said of us? The best of you is like a thorn bush. I mow my yard, and it's, I, my yard's getting smaller and smaller because it keeps growing in. The, the, and there's one little area where I'm, like, terrified. Because if I get too close, it's, I've, I've been just cut to shreds, like a thorn hedge. And it's, th- this is destroying the social fabric, this, this sin. Guard the doors of your... Put, uh, verse 5 and 6. You've got to hear this because Jesus quotes this. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from he who, she who lies in your arms. Don't trust your wife. The one who's lying in your arms, watch out. Because the son rise, treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against the mother. Remember, Jerusalem is under siege from Assyria right now. The war, everything is messed up up society is not functioning right this is what sin does but verse 7 remember when we studied lament there's always a turn a prayer in pain that turns to trust we just went through lamentations a prayer in pain that turns to trust you've you've had that in your brain this this is the turn it starts with woe right this is a lament he is bemoaning what's happening here in 7 1 to 7 But here's the turn. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. First of all, there's an unexpected turn here. Listen. I just did it. Listen. That's been the language of the whole passage this morning. God said, listen. He said, hear. He said, I told you. He said, hear the voice of the Lord. It's all been the speaker. It has been, if if this was it, I'm God, and you guys are supposed to be listening. And now in verse 7, I'm supposed to be quiet, and you're supposed to talk. Big contrast. God will hear me. Do you see it? 
It's supposed to pop. It stands in contrast to everything that's come so far. Instead of God with the bully pulpit, it's God listening. The God of our salvation. The God who cannot help but judge evil. The God who has to judge evil. The God whose character demands that he judge evil. He cannot help but hear the heartfelt cry of a sincere worshiper. He can't help it. He must judge sin and he must hear us. Help me, God. Hear me. He's the perfect judge and the perfect Savior at the same time. He bears the scars of the cross for our salvation. What is Micah's name? What does it mean? Who is a God like this? Who is a God like this? And I hate that this is going to come with a bit of distraction. But I, I fail if I don't. You may have recognized this language from Matthew chapter 10. Jesus quotes Micah 7, 5 and 6 in Matthew chapter 10, and it's in verses 35 to 39. This is as he calls the 12 disciples and sends them out. This is kind of the conclusion. And he brings us back to where I began. Do you love me? Do you love me? This is what Jesus said. Don't think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace. Well, I came to bring a sword. And here's the quote. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And Jesus finishes his thought after the quote saying, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now wait a minute. Last week I thought we were beating our swords into plowshares. And we were turning our spears into pruning hooks. And, and it was beautiful. I thought he was the Prince of Peace. And Pastor Brian just preached, he will be our peace. What gives? Jesus just said, don't think I came to bring peace. Well, listen closely. Absolutely, in the most profound and important spiritual sense, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He did come to bring peace. But alongside of that, in this life, in this life, we will face the same question that Micah addresses in verse 7. As if nobody else is following, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. It might remind you of a statement that Joshua made. I think it's Joshua 24. Joshua 24 when he said, choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the thought that Jesus picks up on. Will you follow Jesus even if no one else does? Will you follow Jesus even if that following does provoke a little unpeace in your life? Though none go with me, still I will follow. How about you? Is Jesus so meaningful to you that you'll follow him no matter what, even if it brings a sword? 
And my prayer for all of us is that we have that kind of love in our hearts for God because He did emphatically and undeniably love us. He is good. Amen.